It is Tuesday. Welcome into Studio Two. I'm Avi Wolfman Aaron. And I am Cherry Gregg. The University of Pennsylvania is under fire from some of its biggest donors. They are threatening to cut off funds if President Liz McGill does not resign. They are alleging anti-Semitism, pointing to a campus Palestinian Writers Festival and statements denouncing the Hamas attack that they believe were not strong enough. And coming up, we're going to talk about the controversy, free speech and how the Israel-Gaza war is impacting college campuses. We're going to hear from Penn education historian Jonathan Zimmerman and Vaughn Garegian, a Penn trustee who recently stepped down in protest. Plus, we have a student journalist with us, Jared Midovich, a news editor at The Daily Pennsylvanian. We do want your thoughts on the recent uproar at Penn. Give us a call, 888-477-9499. You can also email studio2 at org. And the new secretary of the Commonwealth, Al Schmidt, is coming to talk to us about the upcoming elections, voter registration, and trust in our electoral system. But first, we're digging into the news. I've got all, the shovel today. We've all got trust <laughs> in the Philadelphia Phillies. The Fighting Phillies won game one of the National League Championship Series last night, 5-2-3. Cherry Gregg, they hit two home runs in the first inning, including one on the first pitch they faced the entire night. They never looked back. Game two is tonight at Citizens Bank Park at 8.07 p.m. This all happened 12 hours ago. If you are just hearing about it now, congratulations. I have told you and gotten you up to date on the Phillies. Go Phillies. Go Phillies. That's my response. As always, go Phillies. Go Phillies. They did a phenomenal job. And Avi, I have so much more respect for the Phillies now. I've been to games, but on Sunday, Mm -hmm. I'm going to tease you a bit because I got to go to Citizens Bank Park, man. What were you doing at Citizens Bank Park on Sunday? I got to ask questions at a press conference (laughs) ahead of game one of the NLCS. And I got to post questions to JT Romuto. I think I probably messed his name you up a little bit. You definitely did. Go ahead. Uh, starting pitcher, Zach Wheeler Got and Rob Thompson. One of my questions was about the cohesiveness of the team. Let's just give you a little clip. Do you feel like this Phillies team has that cohesion? Oh, no doubt about it. The, we've got a group of guys in that locker room. Not only the players, but the coaches and the sports staff. It's it's as good as I've ever been around, to tell you the truth. He said no doubt about it. He said, Cherry Gregg, you're right <laughs> on the mark. On it, man. And it was pretty cool. Avi, mm-hmm. you were out of town. I, I know was. you was like, you know, kicking yourself a little bit because you're the resident sports fan. But here. I'm not. And I'll tell you why. Because uh, people have always asked me because I love sports and I dedicate a lot of my free time to watching it and following it. Would I be a sports journalist? And I've always said no, because I feel like turning that part of my life into work and getting a little too close to these teams and people would kind of ruin it for me. I mean, the Sunday thing would have been fine, but yeah. people generally assume that I'm like chomping at the bit to do more sports well, stuff. You have thoughts. I have thoughts, but I don't I don't want to cover these teams. I feel like that sucks the fun out of it. Like, what is your hobby? Would you want to cover your hobby? Um, Probably not, right. but we do cover it on the show because yes. <laughs> you like want to talk about it. So I thought you might have wanted to be there, but it's okay. I'm not taking that. It was that cool. It was cool. <laughs> okay. And um, I got a shout out. Zach Wheeler, who um, said he is ready. You know, consistent pitching has been one of the. Th- I get to say stuff like this now. Like sure. I'm, I'm kicking it right now. He pitched consistent last night, by pitching the way. Yeah. has been one of the strengths that Thompson says the team has. 
And Zach Willis said he was ready, taking it game by game all the way. Baseball insight from Cherry. Go Phillies, hey. Greg. Well done. <laughs> Thank you very much. Now, there is a, there's less clarity about winners and losers when it comes yeah. to the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania. Why don't you tell us about yeah, that, Yeah, the Supreme Court race in Pennsylvania could be tie-breaking for election cases across the state. How do you ask? Because right now there is a 4-2 to two Democratic majority, but the Democrats have not been in agreement on issues related to mail-in ballots, which means whoever wins this race could possibly be a deciding vote. Right, because there's now, six people right now, exactly. and so there have been deadlocked decisions. Exactly, right. exactly, because they lost the chief justice, mm-hmm. you know, died um, 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 not too long ago. Now, this means, this race is between Republican Carolyn Carluccio, mm-hmm. who's currently the president judge in Montgomery County Court of Common Pleas, and Democrat Dan McCaffrey, a state superior court judge. Now, they are the top you know, race on, you know, on the ballot right yes. now yeah. um, that everybody's paying attention to millions of dollars of out of state money pouring into this, 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 this election. Yeah. It's interesting because part of it, like you said, is a function of the fact that there just isn't another big state wide no. race Mm-mm. this year. And the odd timing is because unfortunately the, the prior chief justice died while serving. So yeah. it created this vacancy, it created this off year election. People, a lot of folks, around the state and indeed around the country are looking at it as sort of a test case for upcoming judicial elections because Pennsylvania will have, I would imagine, I don't want to say more significant, but there will be other significant ones coming up, including in 2025. So this is an unusual election. The timing is unusual. And so there's a lot of money coming in on all sides and a lot of attention. And it does focus us on the makeup of the court in a way that we, we often don't focus because we're worried about some U.S. Senate race or presidential race or whatever. That is very true. And I should mention that there are other two other statewide judicial races. Mm -hmm. So get yourself educated. A lot of folks, you know, kind of ignore off year races, but this isn't one to ignore. And by the way, I should mention the late Chief Justice Max Baer is the one who died suddenly of a heart attack. Yeah. October of last year. Just wanted to mention his name. Absolutely. Um, Now let's educate folks on the Olympics. Mm. More sports, Cherry. Your favorite. Um, (laughs) They have just announced that five sports will be added to the 2028 Summer Olympics in Los Angeles, California. Mm. Those sports are cricket, lacrosse, baseball slash softball, squash, and flag football. Those Mm. are the five new sports coming in 2028 to Los Angeles, California. Cherry, Greg, your thoughts? Um, I think it's cool, you know, to switch things up every so often. Mm-hmm. But these sports, not sure how I feel about it. I was wondering when is, you know, pickleball coming? You know what I mean? Like I've been, we've it's been talking about time. pickleball it's a lot. A I just feel like the countdown is on yeah. for pickleball. <laughs> All right. So the pro pickleball <laughs> campaign began today. Uh, that That's a, a highlight of Studio Two now. Um, uh, my thought on mm-hmm. this, and I know you want to hear this. Of course. Flag football, don't get it. Just do not understand how this is an Olympic sport. Football, sometimes for the sake of the Olympics, because it's like a two-week format, you can't do like the full version of a sport. So so I get that. But a watered-down version of a sport that's basically just played in one or two countries on Earth in the same part of the world seems like a real stretch to me. Well, I kind of am pro-flag football only because I know a lot of women who love to play. Mm -hmm. And when regular football doesn't allow them to play. That's so a good, I don't know. That's, that's a I don't point. know if, you know, there's a women's option here, 
but it probably you know but but we women typically can't play regular football i yeah and i don't really have a problem with flag football in particular i just feel like football's really not a global sport no and this it's is really a global not. competition like it's it's kind of the opposite of a global sport it's like a true true niche sport in the global context so you're not you're you're anti-flag football i'm a little anti I, I am a little anti. Well, you know what? In 2028, ask me again after I've watched the competition, and maybe my heart and mind will yeah, have changed. Yeah, get your get your hotel reservations now. You know, because <laughs> um, you never know. Speaking of money, forking over money. Yes, I was happy to hear parking tickets in Wilmington could get cheaper, but only if you pay them early. Hmm. This change comes after years of advocacy by drivers urging Wilmington to reduce its parking ticket costs. They were higher than other surrounding cities that were much larger like Philly or Baltimore. And Wilmington has resisted making this change in large part because they really rely on the money from the tickets. Um, but last year, the mayor there announced a, a bunch of changes, including reducing tickets to $25. The city says that they're gonna introduce legislation and this will likely happen. So um, they're gonna be, uh, they're gonna lose about $185,000 in revenue, but they're gonna start charging businesses some extra fees. So they'll make a, another 1.6 million there. So it's a good trade off. It's yeah. a happy, happy situation down there. Well, and not and for the least, businesses, not for yeah. the businesses, but for the drivers. <laughs> for the drivers. But, but you gotta pay within 14 days or That's the catch. tack on the fees. That's the catch. So it's, so it's goes from $40 to $25 if you pay within the first two weeks, mm -hmm. which means if you wanna challenge a ticket because you think it was given to you unfairly, you gotta roll the dice. Dice rolled. Dice yeah, it, are rolled. but you just pay it. It's like twenty five dollars. You're like, all right, do I pay this or do I wait? Let the fees. Well, I think up. they're betting yeah. you'll pay it and just move it move along. Move on. Yep. Uh, speaking of moving on, we'll mm -hmm. go to our newsmaker interview right now. Um, you may have read about the uproar at the University of Pennsylvania. Some of the school's biggest donors are pulling their support. They accuse the university of fostering anti-Semitism following a campus writers festival coupled with Penn's response to the Hamas attack. Over the next two segments, we're going to talk about the origin of this controversy and what it says about speech on campus. And to start us off, we have a news editor at the Daily Pennsylvania, the campus newspaper, who has been covering this story doggedly. Jared Mitovich, welcome to Studio Two. Thank you for having me. So, Jared, you've been covering this issue for a while. I want you to rewind us back. What started this mm -hmm. controversy um, in the first place? It's really interesting because obviously since... Hamas's attack on Israel, there's been so much attention to college campuses and how the response has developed. But at Penn, it's especially unique because a month ago, you mentioned the Palestinian Writers Literature Festival, and that was where the controversy really began at Penn before the current conflict in Israel this even began. This is back in early September, right? Back mm -hmm. in early, mid-September. Yeah. So the, Palest the Palestine Writers Literature Festival was hosted on campus, uh, welcoming over 100 speakers mm. to talk about Palestinian art, culture and literature, but criticism emerged primarily from on-campus and national Jewish groups alleging that some of the speakers had a history of remarks that were denigrating Jews, from the likes of Roger Waters, the co-founder of Pink Floyd, to a former Penn professor. And this was slowly and gradually escalating as the festival approached, um, so much so that our president issued a statement um, condemning anti-Semitism, but clarifying that Although Penn was not connected to the festival, it had a right to uphold the academic freedom on campus. So all of this was the groundwork for what was happening. Mm. The festival ultimately took place without incident. There was a response from Jewish groups. They had a, an event to kind of celebrate Jewish identity on campus, especially in light of two anti-Semitic acts that happened to take place in the week prior. And then now, 
moving forward. Mm. After that died down, the conflict happened where Hamas attacked Israel and, mm-hmm. the, and the war began. And then all of this kind of bubbled back up to the surface, thanks to the likes of the donors that you mentioned, who are pointing out that Penn did host this festival. Can I just rewind? Before we sure. get to that, Jared, um, we say Penn hosted. What does that mean in this mm-hmm. case? Because it's not as sort of... It's could, complicated, you, you, yeah. yeah. You could interpret hosted in many ways. What was Penn's actual role in this event? Right. So Penn did not have a direct affiliation mm-hmm. in the event. Where the event was hosted was a Penn facility. Whoever's in charge of that facility has to approve those external event reservations. Mm-hmm. And then you couple that with a number of departments and centers at the university who had varying roles in organizing specific events at the festival over the course of the weekend. There was a community grant issued by Penn Sac Center towards, again, a specific event at the festival. So all of this kind of couples into an indirect affiliation. But the reality of the situation was it was it did t- take place on Penn's campus. There were Penn students and professors who are present there. So and so you mentioned that it, it took place without incident. So but the proximity of the attack, the Hamas attack on Israel um, bubbled this up. What was the uh, what was the, the series of event, the timeline of discussion on Penn following that attack? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So, of course, after the attack, like many colleges, as the as the school week began, Penn's president issued a statement on the attacks calling them abhorrent, pledging to support Jewish students, deferring university travel to, to Israel and Palestine. But the next day, there was a sense that donors were beginning to launch criticism of the university, beginning mm-hmm. with, with Mark Rowan, who I'm sure you've, you've seen his letter circulating, where he was saying that, look, Penn's present response to this festival and now to this conflict is not sufficient, and thereby I am withholding my donations until Penn's president and Penn's chairman resign. So it sort of spills out into the open. And Mark Rowan's not alone here, right? We should clarify Mark Rowan is affiliated with Apollo, which is a major yes. financial institution, um, is very wealthy himself. Um, but some of, some other members, uh, sort of wealthy supporters of Penn, began to publicly uh, criticize the university. Who and what did they say? Yeah, so after Mark Rowan, I think him publicizing it kind of open the floodgates, to put it lightly, for a number of other donors who carry significant weight at the university. The biggest other example that I would mention is John Huntsman Jr., son of John Huntsman Sr., namesake of Huntsman Hall, Orton's main building, and a number of other significant programs at the university. So on Sunday, we at the Daily Pennsylvanian uh, broke that story that he was also joining Mark Rowan and other prominent donors in halting his donations. The Huntsman Foundation would close its checkbook on the university in response to um, what he said was a university that had become unrecognizable, quote unquote, Mm. from the time that he was at Penn. Okay, and then Liz McGill issues a second statement Mm -hmm. about the Hamas attack on Israel. So what was different about that statement and has it changed at all the sort of pushback or blowback that the university has gotten here? It It definitely has changed that. The main difference if you're going to look at the semantics of it, was she referred to the attack by Hamas as terrorism. And she was more, she expanded on her position, condemning anti-Semitism, condemning the attacks, empathizing with those who were affected with what people on the other side of the argument, those in favor of those, those looking to protect the worsening conditions in Palestine, that group of students and that group of faculty on campus is now saying, Penn's president, Liz McGill, 
did not address Palestinian students or those in Palestine, those in Gaza, Mm -hmm. directly in her statement. She was more so focused on the safety of Jewish students. So that's the current criticism, and it's it's still developing. And and I want to dig into that a little bit. What is the climate on campus among students? Because you have a broad Jewish community. You also have quite a few Palestinian students. What are students saying? I would say it seems pretty tense, especially yesterday. So to the point about the criticism from Palestinian students, there was a seven-hour walkout rally march on campus um, where they pointed out McGill's statement. Jewish students, there was a small counter-protest at that rally among Jewish students holding an Israeli flag. There was one person at the festival who was detained for allegedly um, shoving an individual who was present at counter-protesting at the rally. So it's all kind of bubbling up Mm -hmm. into these like different instances that are overall creating a, an environment where both Jewish students and Palestinians just are happy. one more thing I want to get to, though, before we have to let you go, Jared. Um, there was also a, an accusation among some board members and trustees that who did not support the university's initial statement on the Hamas attack, that they were pressured by the administration, yeah. right, to, to resign or to fall in line. Quickly, can you explain what happened there? Yeah, so a number of the trustees who signed on to an open letter calling for Penn to take a stronger response to the festival, told me and told others that uh, Penn's chairman of the board called them and asked, do you think you can continue to serve in this position? Mm. Hmm. And has Penn responded to that allegation? Have they confirmed, denied? So Penn's chairman, Scott Bach, issued a statement acknowledging that the trustees executive committee offered them the opportunity to step down and highlighting that it was unusual for those trustees to publicly criticize the university in whatever form. And so we have about a a minute left for this segment. Can you just tell us what are the next steps to sort of deal with the tension on campus, to sort of deal with, uh, you know, all these different um, factions um, competing? Definitely. I mean, I think I'm getting emails frequently that more donors are considering withdrawing their donations or messaging the president. I think there's there's another rally among Palestinian students scheduled for tomorrow, similar to yesterday's there's a counter-protest among uh, Jewish groups that are in the work. So it's all kind of continuing to bubble up into a situation where all of the sides are a little bit unhappy for whatever reason. So it'll be interesting to watch from our lenses as student journalists. And mm. last question, do you think that this will impact you know, future uh, opportunities for groups that may uh, want to have things on campus? It's difficult to say, though. I would, I would say that Penn's president has committed to a review of the policies for external event reservations in light of the controversy. Fascinating. That is Jared Mitovich, news editor at The Daily Pennsylvanian, has been covering this story from start. And I won't say to finish yet because it's certainly not done. Thank you, Jared, so much for your time on Studio Two. Thank you. And coming up, we're going to talk more about the UPenn controversy after the break. We'll hear from a Penn trustee who recently stepped down and from a free speech advocate. That and more coming up. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. You are listening to Studio 2. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi Wolfman Arendt. We will continue our conversation now about what's unfolding at the University of Pennsylvania. There have been calls for President Liz McGill to step down along with the chair of the Board of Trustees, Scott Bach. 
Some trustees and big donors have accused the university of anti-Semitism for not issuing strong enough condemnations of the Hamas attack and for permitting a Palestinian writers festival on campus, which included some speakers who have used anti-Semitic language. Von Garegian, a now former trustee of the University of Pennsylvania, announced his resignation after an emergency board meeting pointing to the Palestine Writers Festival on top of the school's response to the Hamas attack on Israel. He spoke with one of our producers about his decision this morning. Here's what he had to say. I was very disappointed the administration allowed that festival go on. And to add insult to injury, there was the massacre by the Hamas terrorists. I spoke to other trustees that I was disgusted with how things were being run at the university and that I can't believe the anti-Semitism, you know, going on at the University of Pennsylvania, an institution with a very large Jewish population and a very large Jewish population on the board of trustees. President Liz McGill released a statement to the university community two days ago saying, quote, we are horrified and by and condemn Hamas's terrorist assault on Israel and their violent atrocities against civilians. Again, former trustee Von Garegian, his response. Anybody can say anything with heat when heat is brought on them to resign or to vote them out. Human nature is such that if that's the position you're in, and your back is to the wall, that you're going to say what you have to say to stay alive, so to speak. Well, where were they when the people were trying to stay alive in Israel? Where were they when they permitted that festival to occur, knowing full well that the participants were people who hated Israel, whose position it was to destroy Israel? And yet, they allowed that to occur on Penn's campus. All right. With us now to offer his perspective is Jonathan Zimmerman, professor of the history of education at the University of Pennsylvania and a free speech advocate. Welcome, John, to Studio Two. Thanks for having me. And we want to get your thoughts about what's happening at Penn and other college campuses. How should universities balance free speech and hate speech? Our email address is studio2 at whyy.org, and our number is 888-477-9499. Jonathan, you heard Penn is in a very hard place right now with many donors who are pro-Israel pulling donations. First, I'd like to get your reaction based on your understanding of what you believe institutions like Penn's purpose and philosophy should be when it comes to free speech. Well, you know, I think that Harry Calvin is looking better and better this morning. <clears throat> Sorry, that might not be a name that uh, your listeners recognize, but Harry Calvin was a law, <clears throat> a law professor at the University of Chicago. And in the late 60s, he was dispatched to write a report, which became known as the Calvin Report, about when and why institutions, universities, should release statements about contested public questions. Hmm. And his argument was they should not. And there were Mm. several reasons for it. But the most important one was that when you put your thumb on the scale in that way, you're actually going to inhibit the kind of discussion that you want. Now, to be clear, I will understand why Jewish groups are saying, well, wait, um, we released a statement about the George Floyd murder. Mm. Why not a statement about this? Mm -hmm. And I think they're right. 
there are some inconsistencies there, but that's not an argument for releasing a statement whenever something horrible happens. In fact, I think it's an argument for Calvin's position, which is once you put the university behind any position, you're actually going to create lots of problems for yourself and for free speech. Yeah. Uh, John, I did notice that there was a statement about the George Floyd murder. Uh, did not find a university statement about Ukraine, although I think the medical college might have made one. The Dobbs yep. decision. So you're right that it's not. DACA. It's, it's statement not, about DACA. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. And so that's it's not every major world or political event. Um, however, you know, John Huntsman Jr. is a former governor of Utah, ambassador to China. His, his family has given quite a bit of money to the university wrote in a letter to President McGill that, quote, moral relativism has fueled the university's race to the bottom and sadly now has reached a point where remaining impartial is no longer an option. How do you parse that statement? Because I think what what he's trying to say, or I I interpret what he's saying, is that if Penn doesn't make statements like this or take positions, it has no core values. Well, see, I would contest that. I hear what he's saying. I respect the comment. But I would say our core value is learning and dialogue. That's our core value. And the way that we respect and the way that we demonstrate respect for that core value is not by issuing these somewhat anodyne statements. Uh, We have solidarity with X, Y, or Z. So much posturing, so much virtue signaling. The way to really signal our virtue is to say that what we are behind is a free and full discussion of this issue. Um, That is a position, by the way. That is not a neutral position. That is absolutely a political position, and it's mine, and I just, I don't feel like we've done a good enough job in either elucidating it or supporting it. Uh, You know, we have an email from Serena who asked about Amy Wax. Did the trustees speak out about her statements? I would, Serena asked, but I also have a question about Amy Wax. I mean, that was a professor at Penn who wanted to bring in a known white supremacist to speak, and it definitely ruffled feathers given the anti-Black hate there, she had been disciplined. What are the similarities or differences in your mind from that case versus the situation with the Palestinian Writers Festival that's happening right now? Well, I wrote a column a few weeks ago about this, and I think it's important to note that in any comparison, there are always going to be differences, right? For example, Amy Wax is an employee of the university, right? The vast majority of the speakers at the Palestine Rights Conference weren't. But then there are also overlaps. Um, So, you know, a lot of a, a lot of people criticizing the Palestine Rights Conference said that uh, those people were engaging in hate speech, quote unquote. Mm. And again, I think there's a fair case to be made for that for that position. But obviously, there are also people that demur from it, and that's precisely why I argued that we should allow the conference to take place, right? Precisely because we disagree about the very nature of hate speech. Um, Now, again, the Amy Wax uh, uh, matter is more complicated because it involves um, uh, uh, an employee, indeed Mm -hmm. a professor, a tenured professor, and it also involves her classroom behavior. Mm -hmm. And in other columns, I've tried to make a distinction between that. I believe that Amy Wax has every right to express any political opinion that she wishes. I believe all of us should rally behind that and behind her. But at the same time, she doesn't have a right to abuse her students in her classroom. So if, which is a huge if, some of the things in the report written about this matter are true, like mm-hmm. her telling an African-American student that she only got in because of affirmative action, I think that's abuse of her position. I don't mm-hmm. believe she should be fired for it. 
Um, uh, uh, but I think that's very different from saying he opposes affirmative action on principle. John, I just want to make sure we get in this comment from Leah, who wrote in an email, my husband attended the Palestinian Literature Festival at Penn. He said it was beautiful and full of joy. The fact that this feeling is being replaced by a fight over money and power speaks volumes. And Leah said, basically, this proves why events like this are necessary in the first place, referring to the actions of the donors. Before we let you go, just about a minute or so left, John, um, what role, you've been in academia for a while, what role do you see donors playing in Mm. shaping the intellectual conversations on campus? And is that role changing over time from, from your vantage point, from what you can see? Well, look, in this particular instance, they are trying to change the conversation on campus. And I think they're trying to do it in some deeply troubling ways. So if you look at the statement by Mark Rowan or the column that he wrote, who was referred to earlier, it's quite a confused statement in my reading, because on the one hand, he says we haven't respected free speech on campus. And by the way, Liz McGill should be clamping down on free speech. Mm -hmm. To me, that just makes no sense. I actually agree with his first premise, which is why I reject his second one. I don't believe that Mark Rowan, by virtue of his dollars or his contributions, should have any particular standing in who gets to say what. I think we should all get to speak our minds. And the problem with this statement is not his support for free speech, which I endorse 100%. It's his implication that the speech that he doesn't like should be censored. Yeah, I got to ask you this. What do you think the impact of this controversy will have on free speech on a campus like Penn? Well, look, here's my hope. I can't predict the future, but my hope is that both the right and the left will get themselves uh, out of the twisted underwear that they've been wearing on this subject. You know, I just exp- I just mentioned one of the contradictions uh, with the more moderate or conservative leading people. But the left has itself all in a knot about this as well. So for 10 years, I've been trying to remind my fellow lefties, look, if what you want to do is start prohibiting speech that is upsetting, that microaggresses people, that triggers people, you got to be ready for people to censor you. And you know what? I was right. I would bet my last remaining dollar, and I don't have many, that almost <laughs> all the Palestinian protesters are somewhere on the political left. Now it's boomeranged against them. Um, uh, if you don't, mm. if you want speech, stop censoring other people. All right. And that, if you're opposed to censorship, stop censoring yourself. That is Jonathan Zimmerman, historian of education and professor at the University of Pennsylvania. Thank you so much, sir, for joining us on Studio Two. Coming up, Secretary of the Commonwealth and former Philly Commissioner Al Schmidt is here in studio to talk about all things election. Turning now to the upcoming election, the Secretary of the Commonwealth, Al Schmidt, has just joined us in studio, quickly getting seated. (laughs) He was confirmed this summer as the Commonwealth's chief election official. You probably know him as the Philadelphia election commissioner who stood up to accusations and attacks by Donald Trump and others of election fraud in the days following the 2020 presidential election. Schmidt also testified before the January 6th committee about the threats he and his family received during that time. So with the November 7th election coming up, we thought it was a good time to talk with the secretary about voting, registration, and ensuring safe and secure elections. Welcome, Secretary Schmidt, and congratulations on on your new position. Oh, thank you, and thank you for having me on today. 
I got to start here. When is the primary going to be for the presidential cycle coming up in 2024? It was going to be April 23rd, then maybe April mm. 2nd, maybe March 19th. Your understanding is it's going to be April 23rd again. What ca- what can you give us as an update on that front? Right. So right now, the primary for uh, 2024 is in conflict with Passover. Uh, so that's one motivation to move it. The other motivation is to make Pennsylvania more relevant in the presidential primary cycle. Um, so there's a couple different uh, reasons to support moving that primary, and the governor's been supportive of of moving. The House and the Senate have not yet agreed on what that alternative date should be, whether it was 19 March or 2 April or some other date. So they're still trying to work that out. I sent them a letter again today urging um, that they – they make this decision quickly. Work because, it out, guys. Because I know the primary seems a long way off. But after running elections for 10 years, there's just so much that goes into preparation for every election. So primary 2024 is really right around the corner. And quick follow-up to that. Is there like a hard, fast date that you need them to have made this decision by in order for you to do your job? There's really no date in the election code. And we've been asked, like, what is the mm-hmm. drop dead date? But really, the longer it goes on, the less time there is for election administrators across the Commonwealth to find new polling places if they need them. Like if you imagine in Philadelphia, some polling places are in rec centers, some are in church, mm-hmm. church community rooms, some are in other locations, and they might have conflicts with different dates. So if the primary moves, and there are those dates are already reserved. So if the primary moves, they have to find alternative locations for those polling places. Schools are closed on election days in Philadelphia mm-hmm. and other counties. So if that moves, those are big accommodations wow. to make as well. And, and I want to zoom out quickly, because my big question for you, you're in this new role. How do you view it? And what do you see as your opportunities here um, as Secretary of Commonwealth. Well, I used to only have one county to worry about. <laughs> now, I, now I have 67 counties to worry about. Although I used to have a lot of, a lot of, you know, uh, authority to make sure that things were done right in the one county. And really, Department of State has an oversight responsibility mm. for all 67 counties. It doesn't run elections directly in any county at all. So it's really about being a good partner to the counties as best we can, providing resources where we can, providing guidance where we can. The election law is always changing with court decisions and all mm. the rest. So we need to be a, a good partner and be supportive of the counties. Uh, last month, Governor Shapiro announced Pennsylvania will have an automatic voter registration system. I'm going to summarize it briefly. You tell me if I'm being too summary here. Basically, uh, you register as a voter when you get a new or updated updated driver's license, unless you opt out of that system. Um, do you know how many new voters have been registered so far through that method? Are there any hiccups to report? More or less, how's it going? Uh, it's going well so far. And it, it is. it was a simple change that should have a big impact. And it's something the governor has been uh, – the governor was supportive of before he um, – came into office and has certainly advocated for and got this done while in office. Um, It will make it easier for voters to register to vote. It's basically motor voter or building on motor voter. Mm -hmm. Um, So again, applicants have the ability to opt out. But when you get a driver's license, think about it. You are already providing your proof of citizenship. You're Mm -hmm. providing your age and all the credentials that you'd need, far more than you'd need to register to vote by completing a regular application. So 
it's just much more efficient and will result in uh, in every state that's done it more voters registering to vote. And then it's the, the challenge after that is getting registered to vote voters to show up to vote on election day. When I, I want to shift gears a little bit um, and talk about mail-in voting <laughs> because that's been something. And you mentioned that as Secretary of the Commonwealth, you're kind of overseeing the 67 counties, and there are a lot of disparities between how counties treat mail-in ballots. What is your role there? Because some some counties give you more places to drop off ballots. Some give you a chance to fix things if you do if you leave a date off. But you it 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 literally depends on where you live. That's that's exactly right. And and you're hitting on I think a very important point. We every county operates under the same Pennsylvania election code, mm-hmm. but they apply that election code very differently when it comes to making voting more accessible for their voters. Like you said, some like Philadelphia and others provide mm-hmm. the opportunity for drop boxes where applicants can return their or voters can return their mail-in ballot in person, especially in the days leading up to an election where it mm-hmm. might be too late to mail it back. Having a Dropbox provides that opportunity. Or uh, just different ways for processing ballots or when ballots come in and uh, the Board of Elections can tell that it's missing a signature or missing a date, the, so the voter didn't sign it or date it, and it's not going to be a be counted. Many counties let voters know that their vote won't be counted so they can still vote on election day by provisional ballot or request a replacement or all the rest. So um, it's really a matter of making sure counties know what options are available to them, not forcing any candidates to do or any county to do one thing. Or Is this one of the times you miss being a commissioner because you could you could actually <laughs> fix whatever problems, right? But now you can only like urge. Yeah, that's right. Although, although, you know, it's and I've I've I know a lot about running elections mm-hmm. in Philadelphia, and I did it for 10 years. But I don't know anything about running elections in Elk County. I don't know anything about running elections mm-hmm. in Juniana mm-hmm. County. So I've made a point to begin visiting all the counties, to visit all the election directors in all the counties. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like an easy, good idea to begin <laughs> with, but 67 counties is is a lot. So I've begun visiting and, and it, it, reaching out to them and, and being supportive of their efforts is, I think, an important role. I think we're going to talk about election misinformation and skepticism and denialism in a second. But there's this weird dichotomy, which is that like in 2020, 76% of registered voters cast ballots in Pennsylvania, according to the department's data. That's actually the highest mark since 1992. So on the one hand, you've got the the denialism and skepticism, but you do have increasing mm-hmm. voter participation. How do you explain those two things? And, and can you drive that participation number even higher? Not only did we have higher voter participation rates, but in addition, we had the most safe and secure election ever in our history, not just in our state, but many states. Because in Pennsylvania, when you vote in person, you now have in every county a voter verifiable paper ballot, meaning whether you filled out the ballot by uh, by hand or used a ballot marking device that prints out your selections for you, the voter verifies it before casting that vote. Or if you vote by mail, obviously the voter has completed it and verified those those selections. Mm -hmm. And they're not used in just one, but two audits after every elections. Elections have never been more safe and Mm -hmm. secure. So it's, it's, it's a real challenge that we have the level of sort of uh, questioning about this system, primarily from you know people trying to make excuses for why they came up short on election day. How do you restore trust? Because the numbers show, uh, especially among Republicans, that only twenty-two percent of Republicans trust the process, 
versus 71 percent of Democrats and only 44 percent of Americans have a great deal of confidence in the system. You're telling us this has been we had one of the, the best elections, most secure how do you sort of restore that trust there? But I think it's important to understand that elections, all these changes um, came very quickly. Mm. And I think when you have a lot of changes with systems that, in this case, voters are familiar with, and then there are changes, it's almost no wonder people have questions. I don't blame anyone for having questions when things change. The problem is bad faith actors seeking to undermine confidence in the election results because they failed. And normally the truth is the antidote to lies. And we have only seen that be so successful when it comes to yeah. uh, mm-hmm. uh, combating election denialism, if that's the right terminology. Speaking of, we have a question from listener Gene. As someone who was the target of threats around the 2020 election, Gene wants to know, are you seeing counties having trouble getting volunteers and poll workers. What's the staffing situation right now? So what we've seen is a significant loss, not just across the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, but across the country with experienced election administrators mm. leaving. Sometimes they're, 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 they, were, uh, they had the ability to retire and then they said, you know, tag with this, I'm going to retire, mm-hmm. or they left to do other things, or, or for whatever reason, Pennsylvania has had a significant turnover with election administrators. The real challenge is... Not only um, is it a heavy lift, but anytime you have new people running elections who don't have experience doing it, the more likely it is that they'll make a mistake in election administration. They're very complicated. And do make a mistake in an environment where anything, any mistake is perceived as being intentional. Is pounced upon, yeah. and, And seeking to change the outcome of the election one way or another. So it's a very... It, it it's a it's a vulnerability when you have all this turnover, and it's a vulnerability that these bad faith actors are exploiting. Can you do anything though to try to ameliorate the situation? I know this twenty twenty four is coming up mm-hmm. real quick. I mean, in your role, can you do something to help replenish the staffing force and uh, make sure that they're the best trained as possible? So there's a couple things. One, to provide training materials to new election administrators. Again, counties differ a lot in terms of their constituents, but they all have the same election code. So a new election administrator might not know, okay, by now I need to make sure I ordered my ballot envelopes. By now I need to make sure that I've uh, published the dates when the audits are taking place or, or whatever else really important things that they they complete, provide training to them, and most importantly, to support them and to to really have their back when they're subjected to these sort of like outrageous accusations and grief. And I got to ask you, I mean, 2020 was a big year. You kind of went to national. Everybody knew who you were at that time because of your stance on on the election here in Philadelphia. Any lessons learned that you're going to implementing your current role. Well, the stance was really just telling the truth, yeah. which is easy to do. I mean, the consequences aren't always easy, mm-hmm. as, as I certainly learned, but it wasn't difficult. And it wasn't any different than what election administrators did across the United States in rural counties and big cities, red and blue alike, standing up for the integrity of elections and combating misinformation. So, you know, I, I, with 2024 on the horizon, I think we'd be naive to think that yeah. that sort of environment won't return. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think we it's important for us to be as prepared as we can, are to combat it. 
Well, I wish we had more time, Secretary, but we don't. Secretary of the Commonwealth, Al Schmidt, uh, really and appreciate you joining us today on Studio 2. You have something to yeah, add, Yeah, I just want to make sure you give people the, the dates yes. that they should be thinking about. Yeah, so on Monday, uh, now less than a week away, is the deadline to register to vote for the election, which will be on uh, November 7th. Okay. So it's a municipal election, but every election is important. Fantastic. There is the vital information yes. from Secretary of the Commonwealth, <laughs> Al Schmidt. Again, appreciate you joining us on Thank Studio you. 2. Um, who helped us with the show today, Cherry? Well, we had our producers, Debbie Builder, Paige Murray Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Charlie Kyer was our engineer today. You can head on over to whyy.org slash Studio 2 or download us wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to rate and review from Studio 2 at WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Cherry Gregg. My name is Avi Wolfman Arendt, and I thank you so much for joining us.